Hey everyone, I'm Alex Cantor. And I'm Lily Rosenthal. Welcome to our podcast, Hot Pastrami. We are coming to you from our favorite booth at Cantor's Deli here in LA. We're going to invite some of our friends to join us for a chat over some matzo ball soup and pastrami sandwiches. So join us for new episodes of Hot Pastrami every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you soon. Bye. I am Sarah Jane Case, and this is Enneagram and Coffee. everyone. Happy Wednesday. I hope your day is treating you well. Today I am answering several questions that you've texted in like, can your Enneagram type change? How to tell if something is shiny object or really something to pursue as a seven? What are the good qualities of type six and how to help a type three who has moved down the stress line to nine and more. But first, today's rose, bud, and thorn. So my rose for today, the thing that's making me happy is that last night I made this soup with cabbage and potato and smoked sausage and I had it again for lunch today and leftovers are just the best. I honestly can't believe that I used to hate them as a kid, like they were the thing that I hated the most. And now I look forward to them almost more than the meal itself. Like just knowing that I have leftovers in the fridge is so, so much fun. Um, My thorn for today is that I've been writing a poem each day. And today my poem was all about this season of not feeling creative or connected to your creativity. Um, I called it the void and... It's a necessary part of the process. Like I really think that a lot of times our inspiration comes from that necessary season of silence and rest and waiting, but it's not the fun part. It's in fact, I think the least fun part. And so while we're in that season where we're just like, hey, like I'm maintaining and I'm waiting and I'm resting and inspiration will come. And I honestly wrote this poem and I read it out loud to my husband and I just started crying because I have been, I feel like, in a void for several months and this is the hardest thing. Like, it's just so hard for me to stay present with that feeling, to be okay with the fact that I'm not producing at my normal capacity and um, it's just got to be okay. It has to. It's just part of the process and not my fave. And my bud is, if you listen to my interview with Morgan Harper Nichols, then you know that I'm a big Avengers fan, big Marvel Universe fan in general. And the new show that just came out is so good. I took, I like got really into it. We watched episode one and I was like, okay, I think I'm going to get into this. And then episode two, it hooked me. And we only episode two has come out. And so now we have to wait. So my bud is looking forward to episode three coming out. All right, let's dive in to today's questions. So the first question that I have was texted in. And they said, when I was younger, I feel like I operated more like an eight. After a traumatic event, I began to operate like a nine. Is there any relationship between Enneagram and trauma? And then there's another question that was related to this that I I am going to share as well. They said, do you think your core fears can change or do you think that it's just someone misunderstanding their core fears when identifying their Enneagram number? 
So I'm going to kind of answer the, answer these in tandem. So the first thing I want to talk about is the soul child theory. I talk about this whenever someone asks, can your number change? And that's because there is a theory that we are one number when we're a child and then we grow into a new number, meaning that we are the number that we are in health at a young age and then we become protective of that version of ourselves. We want to defend it. So we put on this persona that looks like our dominant Enneagram type. And that is to protect that kind of essence of our being of who we were when we were children. So if you felt like you were an eight when you were younger, then that means that potentially that move could be developing your a five persona. I know you said you, you feel like you operate more like a nine, and so I'm not here to say that you do or you don't, but I, I will say that five and nine sometimes have some similarities. They're both withdrawing types. They move away from conflict. They both are seen as more contemplative and quiet. They tend to manage their energy levels. They tend to pre preserve their, their peace of mind in different ways. Fives are managing their energy levels, trying to make sure that they're not getting overly exerted or taken from. Nines are preserving their peace of mind, not wanting to lose that space and not wanting to sever connections that are important to them. So I, I just wanna say if you relate to five, when you read the type of that feels like it could be your dominant type, maybe there's a relationship happening there. However, I'm not a trauma expert, and so I'm not here to say that like you can't dramatically change based, you know, based off of severe trauma. Maybe, maybe you can. Um, trauma responses are really intense, so I I don't want to say that that's not the case or that that isn't happening. Another way that we can make this work in terms of the soul child theory is if you feel confident that you are dominant type nine, both in motivation you know, specifically in motivation and core fear, then that three can look a lot like an eight in terms of they're action oriented, they're driven, they're an assertive type, they're future oriented. Um, so there are some similarities there. So maybe you were a three as a child and you developed your nine persona to kind of preserve that. Now, in general, we say your Enneagram type doesn't change and that it's really this like very clear lens in which you view the world and you likely don't change that over the course of your life. Your behavior can shift and change, but that worldview is likely to stay the same. So for the question related to core fear, I would say likely no, that your core fear would stay the same. However, Sometimes when we think about core fear, we're misinterpreting it a little bit. So for example, I when we think about the core fear for type five as being incapable, they're not walking around necessarily just kind of in constant fear of being incapable. It's more so that they, they orient themselves intentionally as to never be incapable, meaning that they want to be as informed as possible so they're never cut off guard so that they never have to be incapable. If we think about the core fear of a two not being loved or liked, maybe they fixate on that, but more so they're going to do everything in their power to guarantee that that doesn't happen. So they've kind of formed their personality in response to preventing that fear. So hopefully that, that makes sense and that can clarify something there. But again, who am I to say? <laughs> you know, I 
I don't want to say that you absolutely can't change your type because, um, you know, I've been doing this for, what, five, six years? So that's a short span of time. And most of the teachers that I've heard um, and that I've worked with and I've trained with and studied with, they tend to say the same thing. Like, no, you, you really don't change your type, but also, who am I to say? Okay, the next question is, I'm a seven and I have a classic love of change and a distaste for anything unpleasant. Same. It's difficult for me to stick to anything, but how do I tell the difference between a problematic situation that I need to get out of and just being a seven? Thanks. Here is my method for this. As a fellow seven, I have figured this out for myself for the most part, and this has been so, so life-changing for me. And that is that I do temporary commitments. Meaning, if I'm taking on a new project, if I'm in a new relationship, if I have a new friendship, when things get uncomfortable, if I'm starting to feel like I don't know if this is the best thing for me, I commit for a certain period of time. So maybe I say, I'm gonna do this for the next three months, full on, I'm going 100% on my end, I'm gonna get up at everything that I've got, I'm not gonna have an exit plan, and I'm going to be 100% here and present with it. If at the end of that three months, it's still, and I'm like out of that emotion of the moment that made me decide to make this commitment in the first place, I still feel like, yeah, it's time for me to move on. It's time for me to sever, sever ties here. Then I'm good to go. Like that is the right move for me. I feel confident in that decision because I'm not making it out of the desire to escape pain because that pain, most pain is temporary. And if we just breathe through it, we can get to the other side and we still want to be there. But in the moment, it feels eternal. It feels like it's going to suck me down and I'll never get out. And it's like quicksand, right? And so I, I want to jump out of it. However, a lot of times it's just that temporary emotion that I'm trying to avoid more than it is the entire situation. And so that doesn't mean that we never move on from things that aren't working for us, but we want to make that decision when we're not in fight or flight mode, right? We want to make that decision when we are at a place of neutrality, And so setting that temporary commitment can get us to the place where we can really assess based off of data and not emotion, whether this is the right fit for us. I hope that's helpful. Okay, the next question. There's a lot of negativity around what it means to be a six. Depressed, anxious, ridden, assuming worst case scenarios. What are some of the positive traits to being a six? So before I give you the positive traits about being a six, I want to preface this. I think sometimes we take our positive qualities for granted, meaning we dismiss them as not positive enough. Like we think other people's positive qualities are somehow cooler or better than ours because they're more elusive or fancier than ours because we aren't as good at them. Um, So I just want to say, I don't want you to take them for granted. I'm going to run through the things that are really great about sixes, and I don't want you to dismiss them as not good enough. Just know that I, as a seven, envy the positive qualities of the six. 
There are things that I try to intentionally cultivate in my life on a daily basis. A lot of times sixes in my life say, oh, I really wish I could be have the positive qualities of a seven. And that is a universal feeling. We really are quick to dismiss our positive qualities and see them as not positive enough. But hear them as what they are to me, which is really enviable, okay? So sixes, you guys are loyal friends. You are responsible. You are trustworthy. You are prepared. You are committed. You're good at making friends and building a community. You're team players. You are great in a crisis. You are brave. And you're great at turning around a sinking ship, meaning you can come into the worst situation possible. And actually, that's oftentimes where you thrive. You can turn around a failing company. You can rehabilitate a broken relationship. You can really take things from the ground and make them beautiful again when they feel like they don't have a future. So that's, in my opinion, the best qualities of a six. I hope that you see them as such. Our next question, how do you balance differing Enneagram types and relationships in terms of letting people be themselves versus getting our needs met? And when to know it's just plain incompatibility. For example, I'm a four married to a five, but his five isolation, privacy and protecting his energy and emotional intimacy makes me think we just might not be compatible. It sometimes seems unfair to ask him to be a different person for me to feel like my needs could be met. Thanks and love your work. So I think of this as very practical, right? We oftentimes we do think of it like that, like, oh, I need you to be a completely different person. Um, But really what we need is just them to meet our needs on a circumstantial basis. So we don't need our five to all of a sudden become like mushy, gushy, um, emotionally available people who are constantly sharing their emotions with us. And in fact, I would argue that wouldn't offer us the challenge that we need and the balance that we oftentimes need in relationship um, if they were to just be exactly like us, right? So um, I, I think of it as what's the circle of control and how can I make requests from there? The circle of control is I can only control myself. So I will give 100% to this relationship and what I need. And part of giving 100% of the relationship to the relationship is making requests. So that's like a direct request for getting your needs met. Meaning, okay, so I, I instead of taking it from like this overall feeling of my five is private, they're protected, they're isolated, they're not emotionally available. Instead, ask yourself, what is the need here? What do I need from this person? Is it once a week connecting on an emotional level? Ask specifically for that versus asking them to become something else, right? That's not what we're asking for. We're asking for an action that they can take that is both specific and time sensitive. Because when you can be specific and time sensitive, then they can know what they're agreeing to versus saying like, I need you to be more or less of something. Because that is a really daunting and big ask that feels a little bit... um, it's like a big commitment, right? Like, And you're asking for a lot in that. But 
when you really get down to it, the need, if made specific and time sensitive, they can decide at that point, yes, I can do that or no, I cannot. And from there, you can decide, can I handle their response? So they can deny that, but you may not be able to have a relationship with someone who won't show up in that way. Because it's not really about compatibility, it's really about both people working on the relationship. So his work may be meeting you in an emotional place, while your work is likely to be being grateful for who they are as they are. Um, The other thing I want you to keep in mind, just for fours out there in general, is that the four preoccupation is longing. So you're more comfortable with longing than safety. And so this can generate doubt in relationships as if maybe there's something better out there than this that I could long for. And honestly, every relationship sucks and every relationship is beautiful. Every single one is going to have beautiful things and hard things. And so there is no escaping the need to make those requests. Every relationship you have is going to show up this way until you show up differently. However, if they really aren't willing to meet you in the middle, it may not be about how compatible you are, but more so how willing you both are to do the work. Maybe they aren't willing to do the work and that is good information, but you will never know until you ask. And again, the only ask that's appropriate is one that is action oriented, something they can agree to do or not do. And that's willing you guys can find a compromise on versus Can you become more or less of something personally? Because that is asking for something that's kind of amorphous, ever-changing, could be based off of a feeling, but action, they can, they know what they're agreeing to, right? And a great non-Enneagram book for this is The Seven Principles of Highly Effective Marriage. It is so, so good. It's very practical. It gets you both on the same page. If you read it together, it's it's awesome. So that might be a good place to explore as well. All right, our next question. What are some great planners for an Enneagram 9? I need help balancing work life and personal life. My planners become so work-focused, I forget the rest of my life. I also often get overwhelmed with certain planners. Either it's so too restricting, too open, I don't even know where to start. Okay, I have four suggestions for you. <laughs> um, so I will link in the description an Enneagram planner. So Workspacery actually makes planners specifically for your Enneagram type. It's so, so cool. And um, I don't think that they're currently live as this is go- as this goes live, but I know that she has a new launch coming in just a couple of weeks. So you might want to stay tuned for that, but we'll make sure to link to that for you as well. So she has one specifically for type nines and like your needs. And then the other planner that I thought of was the Life Map Daily Planner. And this one is very practical. It's very simple, but it's also thorough. It has really good questions. So if you need help setting goals or deciding where you want to be um, putting your focus, it go, they do it in 13-week sprints. And so if you have the time to really sit down and reflect, it can help you to prioritize where you want to be putting your energy for the next quarter. And then the other thing I I often say to nines is not necessarily to have a planner. Maybe it's more beneficial for you to have a 
piece, a pad of paper and you just write down every single day, these are the three things I need to get done today in order to have a successful day. And for you, if you're saying, okay, I'm great with work, but it's my personal life where I struggle, maybe you just need to ask yourself, what do I need to do today in my personal life to have a successful day and write those three things down and just do that. Um, a lot of times nines get really overwhelmed by the prospect of something becoming stressful. And so if it's really complicated or it's really big and it makes you prioritize a lot, it can actually be demotivating for our nines. And so sometimes for, for nines in my life that I work with, I, I encourage you to simplify that process as much as possible. And so you are going to want to potentially do just three little things on a pad of paper each day. It might be that simple. The next question in the last one for today is what is the best way to help a three young adult who has lost her way and is trying very hard to be a very chill nine to please someone in her life? More than any other number, our threes need someone who will be there and love them in their rawest form. They need to get in touch with their feelings honestly, at minimum with themselves, but ideally also with another person. Now, they won't do this if they feel that it will slow them down or if it will make them feel subjected to criticism or make you doubt their abilities to handle things. So tread really lightly with your opinions and just listen. Ask them good questions and don't be greedy for a response. The question may be plenty for them to consider in their own time. Also, there is a chance, I don't know the situation here, but maybe they're burnt out and just need to rest at nine for a while and that can be its own form of self-care. But if that's not the case, you know, again, just ask them good questions, encourage them to feel their feelings and not push them away. Today's food for thought as we come off of that last question is for our threes or anyone else struggling with the void right now. It's from John Lubbock. Rest is not idleness and to lie sometimes on the grass under trees on a summer's day, listening to the murmur of the water or watching the clouds float across the sky is by no means a waste of time. As always, it is such a joy to create this content for you. Thank you all for being here and I will see you tomorrow for the next episode. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.